All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm not an optimistic person. If you read the book, you know I'm, I'm basically No, you're a little gloomy. gloomy, yeah. I'm a gloomy person, yeah. No. <laughs> I do have fun. Ellen Allman may be gloomy, but she is also supremely cool. And if you recognize her name, well, two points for you, because I was not nearly aware of the impact she has had as a pioneering computer programmer who taught herself to code over 40 years ago. She's also an author who has written numerous novels and critiques about the very tech industry that she was working in. And I thought, gee, I've got to get out of this culture. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and note to self, new problems are just reincarnations of old ones. And there's been a lot of news recently about that old problem of tech culture and women. The internal memo that was written by a since-fired Google engineer who claimed hiring women to write code was going to bring down the company. The CEO of Uber ousted after Susan Fowler, an engineer there, wrote a manifesto describing just how bad the culture of sexism and harassment was and how little the company did about it. Another CEO gone just last week, this time for allegations of sexual misconduct at the lending startup SoFi, a company that has advertised here on this very podcast. And out this month, a tell-all memoir from the venture capitalist who sued her firm for sexism, Ellen Pow. My favorite anecdote in the book is the one where a partner hands around homemade cookies at the table, but he just skips over the women like they're invisible. They don't exist. Anyway, lots of talk about how women get treated in the tech world today. And so we decided to go to Ellen Allman for some perspective. Her new book is called Life in Code. It is a wonderful compilation of essays that she's written over the years. And she chronicles what it was like to be a woman in the early days of Silicon Valley. The client with pendulous earlobes who had a sweaty hand going up and down my back while I tried to fix his system. How she fell in love with writing software. In the early days, we had a group of sort of crazies. Um, a former Sufi dancer, art history majors who never finished their PhDs. Ellen was also often scary good at predicting where our technology and society would go next. Instagram, she called that one over a decade ago. And even though she knew Google would be huge, she still said no to Larry Page when she ran into him at a party in San Francisco in the 90s, and he offered her a job on the spot. This was a party with young men in T-shirts and jeans holding beer bottles. You know, I, I just have to get out of here. You know, I knew Larry through his brother, Carl, and we were friends. And so I knew them, you know, we'd go out to dinner with his—I met his mother— 
who was also, by the way, a, a programmer in uh, the 60s. And I thought, gee, I've got to get out of this culture. I did have difficulties, serious difficulties, with some of my male colleagues. I worked with one who absolutely would not talk. He could not talk. He was so unable to relate to other human beings. And we exchanged email, and we had between us a whiteboard. And the email would say, look at the whiteboard. I put something up there. I drew a diagram. Do you feel like he's symbolic of something broader or or just a a funny anecdote of a weird dude? No, I encountered that quite a lot. And I faced his hostility. I really did. It was clear that I couldn't be just good or good enough. I had to be really good. I couldn't make mistakes. If I made a mistake, I was, mm, she's a stupid girl. You know, she's here because, well, they wanted to hire a woman. It's very difficult burden for women in technology to bear. I mean, it makes me wonder what went through your mind when you read that Google memo by uh, James Damore, who basically said it's a biological thing that women aren't mm. as good at programming. I mean, is he just a jerk mm. or is he indicative of what seems like a deeply held belief that women just aren't suited for coding? He's not the most hostile of men protecting his territory that I've met. He is of a type that I know, politically conservative usually, anti-affirmative action, hostile toward women. But he's the first one I've met who proclaimed from the rooftops, it's not only that women aren't good enough right now, they are incapable of being good enough by virtue of their biology. Women take most of the child care responsibilities, the care of elders. Even if women don't have children, they absorb that stereotype of a woman who has those responsibilities. And then you go to work in a non-traditional role, and you're supposed to compete with some guy with no family responsibilities or responsibilities that are taken up by a wife or somebody else, and who sleeps under his desk, and his main responsibility is his dog, which can be taken to work. So it is sexism. Women are basically punished for perpetuating the human race. But it was the anger in that memo that most struck me, the hostility and seething that he felt he had to have this political viewpoint and hated affirmative action. And, you know, it's not worth it. Even if you give them a hand up, look, they still can't succeed. And in general, my experience is when you go to a meeting or conference, the harder the group is working to welcome in women and minorities, the fiercer the response from the mostly male culture on the inside. I just want to read one quote to you. You say, there's this overarching motto, and you're talking about the Valley, indeed the mantra, chanted and repeated and proclaimed as the goal of a startup, change the world. The assumption is change for the better, but rarely have I met would-be founders who consider how the better world they envision might be entwined with one that is worse. And as you say, you are a little gloomy, so you definitely see the worst. But I think we're at this point now in our culture that we are starting— I don't think that's being gloomy. In that case, I don't think it's being gloomy. Realistic. Because the past has value to us. If we don't learn from the experience of other people, what they tried— what they failed at, what they thought was good, what they thought was worth investigating. And then we're reinventing the wheel over and over and over. Also, 
it gives you humility. Other people, human beings, modern human beings existed for 200,000 years and the modern internet for about 20 years. So a lot happened before all this stuff. Okay, in a minute, more with Ellen Allman and the one big mistake she thinks every wannabe startup founder has to stop making. Note to self, I'll be right back. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and I'm talking to programmer, writer, critic, all-around badass Ellen Allman. Ellen doesn't do that much coding these days, but she still is on the scene in San Francisco. And she even goes to pitch sessions where tech founders try to convince investors that their startup is worth putting money into. And I met this young man, and he told me he was doing um, an app to help companies scan resumes for candidates who were a good cultural fit for the organization. So I said to him, well, cultural fit is another way of saying, I want to hire the people like the ones I've already hired. I don't want to disrupt the kind of composition of this group. It perpetuates the segregated computing culture. And we need fresh people involved in this. And he listened to me quite patiently. And then he said to me, I'm not working for society. I'm working for the company. (laughs) And to me, that couldn't sum up better what we need to change. How do we bring the values of society to be more congruent with what is being produced in computing? And the impulse to do that is still there deeply in us. It's part of our evolution. But if you think about it, it's a breakdown of civic life because, you know, if you think about your neighborhood, you have people around you, and sometimes they're utter pains in the neck. You hate this one. You love that one. This one makes noise. This one doesn't take in their garbage or whatever. But you have to put up with that person. You have to make them come to some situation in which you go, okay, that person has a right to live here. I have a right to live here. And this is the way the world runs. But if you get on the web, you have your own friendship circles. You can avoid anybody you want to avoid. And it loosens the sense that people are in it together and have to put up with one another. And that saddens me. I mean, I haven't been at this for nearly as long as you. But in the last couple of years, my podcast has been poking sort of holes in the tech economy and how it works. And Even just two years ago, people were like, what are you even talking about most of the time? But even just in the last couple months, I've seen more articles questioning the outsize role of the big companies and the outsize power that they hold over every single thing we do all day long. Do you feel like we're at a moment where people are sort of starting to question more than they were previously? Absolutely, yes. I couldn't be happier about that. However, these companies are very powerful. The systems they create, the apps, go so deeply into the intimacies of our life. So we can say we're protesting. At the same time, they already have deep claws in us. And it's very funny. I talk to people, and they have this strange double-mindedness about Mm. it. 
oh, yes, they're controlling me. Oh, yes, I'm being surveyed. Corporations and the government can see everything about me. On the other hand, gee, I really love this app. So I don't know how we will give up the tools and the candy they've given us. It's worth posing the question. When you say, I'm going to create a, a driving service or any one of these other services, like cab drivers, you know, it was a, a route for immigrants to get their first job. And I've talked to a lot of them, and they have sent their kids to college on this. That is how they made their way in the world. And whole professions like that are being wiped off the table and being replaced by a world in which the people who are drivers are fighting to have even a modicum of income. Meanwhile, the people at the top are earning billions. So this is a change worth noticing. And how do people in the Valley react when you talk and criticize and point out the very deep flaws that there are to the new system that we have? Well, I'm not invited much to the Valley. <laughs> you, you don't go and talk to those companies at all? They don't invite well, you to speak? Um, I, I've spoken at Qualcomm, and I'm going to go down to Google on Thursday. I'm wondering how that's going to be. In the last chapter of your book, you are sort of very much in the present. Donald Trump is in office, and you start talking about why outsiders need to be embraced. And it made me think of... Ellen Powell, the woman who was at the VC firm Kleiner Perkins who sued them for gender discrimination, and she just came out also with a book where she describes being on this private plane with a bunch of colleagues who are talking about porn stars, and they ditch her once they land in New York, and she goes off by herself to the hotel, and they go out clubbing. And she's like, I'm an outsider. I've been invited in, but they don't want me around. They'll do anything to shake me loose. How do we explain that it needs to be more than just talk or just inviting people, but actually making them part of the process? How can we appeal to the people who are in charge right now who pretty much like things the way they are? Thank you very much. Well, you don't appeal to them, okay? (laughs) Forget that. People who have power don't give it up willingly. Period. You know, her suit failed. Women who write memos after they leave a company, it changes things. It raises awareness. But we need support from legislation. But mostly, it's going to take a lot of grit and a lot of facing up to prejudice and grabbing your angry dignity and stay with your love for the work and understand you're going to have to really fight your way in. Now, one of the things DeMore says is like, well, this is not good for business. It's a waste of Google's, he calls it finite resources, which made me laugh. It is good for business because the values inside the computing culture come about in a very closed world of very rich investors and venture capitalists that have a set of values. And bringing in new people busts open those values. We need a whole new army of programmers who come in from different ways of life. Now, I'm not a futurist. I mean, I was describing what was happening, an unfolding of trends, of meanings that were going on in front of me in society vis-a-vis technology. And my own love for it at the time, it was all mixed up. But to say what will happen in the future, I the fact that these came true, I'm very unhappy about. <laughs> Uh, So what will happen from here? I really can't say. (laughs) 
Helen Allman. She might be gloomy, but I am, as ever, optimistic. Especially since I've been on the road on my book tour, visiting the surviving indie bookstores across the nation, the remaining jewels of our literary history, and I've been getting to talk to a lot of you. And I have to say, the thoughtful, insightful questions and ideas that you have make me think, you know, at least some of us are on the right track. We're talking about it. We are looking into each other's eyes, having some empathy for each other, bringing back a little public life with some civil, civic discourse. And if you happen to walk by one of those indie bookstores or you're online, check out Ellen Allman's delightful book, Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology. And if you want to see Ellen Allman and me in person, we are appearing together at Housing Works in New York City on September 28th. We'll put all the information on our website, notetoselfradio.org, and in our newsletter. We're going to be talking about her book, of course, and mine, Bored and Brilliant. If you have read Bored and Brilliant, thank you, and I have a request. Please go and leave a review on Amazon. You know all about the algorithms that rule that website and a lot of our world. We've talked about it on the show. Well, those algorithms really, really like reviews. Your feedback will help get the book in front of more people, which will help me and my team do more cool experiments with you here on the show. If you love the book, if the challenges helped you make purposeful choices about your technology, let the robots know. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Kunane, and Joe Plourd. Many thanks to our new intern, Adriana Tapia, for her help this week, too. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you for listening. Hey, it's Manoush again. Yeah, I'm sitting at Seattle Airport. My flight is delayed. But you know what? I'm still feeling kind of high because I've been meeting so many of you on the road and you're amazing. We've taken selfies and yes, that's okay. We've signed books. We've had great conversations. You've told me your personal stories. Some of them are tough. Some of them are weird. Some of them are delightful. Uh, Keep the stories coming. Email us. Tell us what you want us to tackle next. Yeah, I'm a little loopy. I'm tired. But this whole book tour thing has been great. So thank you.